10 and 11. They will eat but not have enough. That should be not. I think I typed this myself. They will engage in prostitution but not increase because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people. They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. Um, and he goes on to say they, um, they are unfaithful to their God. Um, so the gluttons will starve. The ones who give themselves to prostitution will become maybe impotent. Um, the, 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 they'll love old and new wine, but they're not going to have enough. And then the, verse 12, they consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick. Um, not sure what the stick is. Uh, some think that it could be like a divining rod. So they go after one kind of idolatry and they get an answer through a different kind of idolatry. You know what a divining rod is? A divining rod is a Y-shaped stick. Uh, sometimes called a, uh, what is it, a witching? Dowsing rod, yeah. Well, you say witching for water. That's what you say. And you hold, with a little bit of pressure on the stick, you move along and, uh, in theory, where there's water underground, where you're going to dig a well, the stick will go down. Yes, it is making fun of them. Because the other possibility, besides the divining rod, is the idol itself, right? Yeah, yeah, and also that the stick of wood might be a stick. It might just be a punishing, you know, it might just be, you know, like Luther's uh, 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 horn book. It might just be a whack. You know, you're going you're to consult an idol, but you're going to get beaten, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and what, what, what's going to answer you? A piece of wood, finally, right? Yeah, a stick. So a spirit of prostitution, and remember that to God, adultery and idolatry are equal things. So that um, a spirit of prostitution is to God a spirit of breaking the first commandment as well. And they're unfaithful to their God. Um, they sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. All of those are big spreading trees. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. Um, so you condemn prostitution, God says, but I'm going to allow your own daughters and daughters-in-law to become prostitutes themselves. Verse 14, let's just move right into it. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. So if you would like to learn the four Hebrew words for prostitute, this is your verse, okay? Um, and uh, so God, once again, saying, I'm throwing up my hands to you people. Uh, your daughters turn to prostitution. You want me to condemn them? I'm not going to condemn them. Because when you condemn them, you men go off with prostitutes and shrine prostitutes yourselves. You're all hypocrites. So I'm, I'm not going to condemn them. You're, you're condemning them, but I'm not going to get in on all of this. It's just a mess. N none of this is upstanding or right. Your reasons for condemning their prostitution are not my reasons. So God says, I'm not on your side about 
about any of this. Oh, okay, let's uh, take a breath and move on. So, Hosea 4.15. Though you commit adultery, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Um, so, Israel sinning all the north. What about Judah down south? Um, do not go to Gilgal, do not go to beth Aven, and do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. So Gilgal and it should be Bethel. beth Aven is, is Hosea's sort of cynical name. beth Aven would mean house of wickedness. Bethel would mean house of God. So it's where they had set up the, 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 um, the calf idols. And do not swear as surely as the Lord lives because you don't believe in me, God says. And he wants Judah not to get wrapped up in this. But some of the people of Judah were kind of, you know, on the border. They were kind of drifting into this a little bit. The Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. Uh, what's a heifer? Cow that hasn't given birth yet. A stubborn heifer won't even go out to the pasture. She's, you know, I mean, I mean, how then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. So God says Ephra that Ephraim is a, a, a way of saying Israel. It was the biggest of the northern tribes and the central one in, in many ways. Um, Ephraim's joined to idols. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them to shame. So they're going to get carried away by the whirlwind. Um, when, a, when a Christian faces a storm in life, a whirlwind, we bear up under it because God says he'll be with us, right? And if something happens, we know that everything works out for the good of those who love him. Might I know I ask God to preserve my life? Might my life be spent, though, in a storm? It's possible, right? Normally, though, what do we do in, say, uh, uh, the, the kind of storm we haven't had this year? Fierce winter blizzard and, you know, ice and terrible wind and everything. What do we usually do at home? Stay, we stay home, we hunker down. If you have a fireplace, you turn it on or stoke it up, whichever you do. Um, and as a missionary, we just turned it on, though, also. Um, um, however, this kind of whirlwind, this storm, is not that kind of storm. God is going to send a storm that's going to blow the northern tribes away. And help me, what was this storm? The Assyrians. Yeah, the Assyrian Empire is coming. Um, it's going to sweep them away. That's the, how the chapter ends. Okay. Now, Hosea, speaking years later, is speaking during the Assyrian crisis, I believe. And I have a couple reasons for believing that. Um, so he condemns the north for just suddenly at the last second when the invasion is coming, they decide, oh, let's put on our church clothes and look good. They have kind of this, um, can I say, veneer of maybe we should look godly at least. Um, but it's too late. And he condemns that as a, like a new cult, a false religion. So this is what was happening in the years 646, 5 and 4 and 3 maybe, about those years, the Assyrian uh, crisis. So in, in around 646, the Assyrians came in from the north, that's the red line, 
And the people of Israel, the northern tribes, the next year, because they, they, they did attack Damascus in the first campaign, then they, it's like they bypassed the northern tribes, Israel, and they kind of attacked Philistia on the coast. And I think the people of Samaria were thinking, oh good, you know, they, they, they missed us. Uh, and then the next year, they went off the map. They go way down into what we would call Edom, you know, way, way down south. Um, but then a few months later, this happens. These little raiding parties come up north. One of them goes as far as Jerusalem. And who do they meet on the washerman's field on the north end of Jerusalem? The prophet Isaiah and King Hezekiah. And we have this little scene that's four chapters long, Isaiah 36, 37, 38, and 39, the historical bridge, the Assyrian crisis, when uh, Nebuzaradan comes and talks with Isaiah the prophet and King Hezekiah. Um, and the king is nervous about this, and, uh, and uh, there's, there's kind of a miraculous little sign that's given and so forth, and... Um, and so on. The following year, though, as if, if, the, if the North thought that they got off easy, well, this happens. The Assyrians come back around and hook up and cross the, the, um, the, the Jordan River and attack Samaria, and they're gone. The, the northern tribes are captured and, by and large, exiled. Because of the size of the Assyrian army, there were just so many of them. The ferocity of the Assyrian army. They cut off heads and piled them in heaps. The prophets talk about this. They cry out about this. So many bodies and, uh, and captured you know, like earrings and, and things like that. And the Assyrians um, uh, put bodies on spears and things. And they did horrible, horrible things. They flayed people. And if you don't know that, what that means, it's, it's really bad also. And it just, it just got worse and worse, and the people just would give up. You know, I, I, for one thing, I don't want to die, but I really don't want to die that way, you know, is kind of what the people were saying. And they went off, they were carried off into exile, back to Assyria, more than 300 miles away, some of them even further, um, up in, I, we think, maybe up north of the Caspian Sea even, and they went way far away. And the few people who stayed behind, I'm not going to give away the chapter because we're going to talk about the ones who stayed behind. So, 5-1. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, O royal house. So, priests, people, and kings. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mitzpah, a net spread out on Tabor. The rebels are deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. Mit, and this is the veneer of the old religion. Because what happened at Mitzpah? Saul had been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. And now, what, you guys are trying to return to those days? Or Tabor, what happened at Tabor? Oh, who was the famous woman judge? Deborah. That's Deborah's victory over Sisera at Mount Tabor. So that's, and you guys are calling up past glories that the Lord gave you 
this, the first king you're trying to go back to say, oh, he was the great king of Israel, Saul, because he was a northern, the only northern king of the, of the, of the, Union, uh, the, the uh, United Kingdom and so forth. But now uh, God says they're deep in slaughter. They're trying to bury the bodies deep. But I know where all the bodies are buried. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel's not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds or their business maybe um, do not permit them to return to their God. They were so deep in sin that they couldn't get out of it. It was like what their whole economic system was based on. Like, uh, oh, let's just use some, like, like a South American drug runner or something like that. That's the whole economy of, of, of the tribe. It, of course they're not going to turn away from that. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution or idolatry is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the, acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, so all the Israelites, even the, like the cream of the crop, Ephraim, stumble in their sin. And Judah, or some of Judah, also stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. So uh, they're not going with their herds and their flocks to sacrifice. They didn't have a legitimate sacrifice. They didn't have a legitimate worship at all. So when they go with their herds and flocks, they're just bringing along lunch. Nothing else. God says, this isn't, you're not worshiping me. They are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate or children of unfaithfulness. Now their new moon festivals will devour them and their fields, their sacred holidays. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah, raise the battle cry in Beth Avon, lead on, O Benjamin. This actually recalls a scene in the book of Judges when the tribe of Benjamin went to war against everybody else, or vice versa. And they almost got wiped out. But who was Benjamin? Um, can you take your right arm like this, hold it out? And let's just say that your forearm is Israel and your bicep is Judah, okay? Put your hand on top of Judah like this on your bicep, your other hand, and close this over. Now you have a map of Israel. Now do you see where Benjamin, I'm, I'm sorry, did I say Judah? That's where Benjamin was. That's your hand. Benjamin is in between Judah and the south and Israel and the north. That's Benjamin. Does that make sense? So Benjamin, it's even kind of shaped like that as if your hand is resting on your, on your muscle there, depending on how much muscle you have. You know. um, mine's kind of flat, but other guys probably have a nice... But that, it's called the saddle of Benjamin often. Benjamin is in the middle of everything. And so Gibeah, the birthplace of King Saul. Ramah, the birthplace of the prophet Samuel. Again, Saul, Samuel, you know, recalling their past heroes in the north. Raise the battle cry in, well, they wanted to say Bethel, but it's, Hosea can't say Bethel. He has to say Beth-Avon, house of wickedness. Lead on, O Benjamin. It's, Hosea is mocking the north because, well, what happened to Benjamin the last time they were the leaders in a big battle like this? They almost got wiped out completely. Uh, so it's, it's just going to be a mess. So he's, he's, he's mocking them. 
9. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I'll pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. While the people of the north were being carried away by the Assyrians, the people of Judah, especially in the north part of Judah, were like rubbing their hands like, ooh, that big, uh, that big plantation up there, that they, they just took away the family. What might I do? If I move a couple of boundary stones, that's my plantation, right? So that's what they're starting to think down in Judah. And God says, no, I, you know, no, no, you're still not moving boundary stones. Um, I'm going to pour out my wrath like a flood of water. What does the, just the phrase, a flood of water, does it conjure anything up in your biblical memory? Yeah, Noah. My wrath is coming like the flood. Um, so uh, before you rub your hands together, maybe you should put your hands together in prayer and, and, you know, and repent of your sins. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. Um, so what they hoped for, which was maybe that God would come and rescue them, but they've turned away from God, they, they hoped he would be their salvation. He's going to become like a moth and just destroy everything. Anybody lost anything to moths ever? My mom did a few times. Um, in fact, mom even, what did she do? She stuck cloves into oranges sometimes to, to, to supplement what was in the cedar chest to, to keep the smell, uh, to keep um, uh, like must and mildew away. Kind of an interesting idea. She'd have to change it every six months, but she would stick oranges in there that would kind of dry up and really delightful smelling. You get the orange peel and what is the clove scent? It's not quite cinnamony, but anyway, to keep the moths away and mothballs. Mothballs kind of stink though, so mom used this other kind of homemade remedy. But Because um, I remember the moths sometimes getting at our stuff in Poinette and it would be usually um, the wool that they would eat through the wool. I don't know why it was wool always, but is that just what moths like to eat? I guess, but yeah. Yeah, boy, they sure stayed away from the polyester. though. So the bright orange and green polyester, like, survives everything. Yeah. The word idols here, we, we have a minute. I didn't have time for this this morning. Intent on pursuing, the, the word here is tsav. Um, and it, it can really kind of mean command or ordinance rather than idle. Like you've made up your own laws. You know, you're pursuing your own commandments, not mine, but yours. This is kind of the beginning of that idea of the Pharisees or the Sadducees with making up additional laws on top of God's laws. This, this is kind of this idea already spooking around here in, the, in Hosea's time, in the, in the 600s B.C., um, or, or, or late 7, early 600s BC. And, um, uh, so that's that word idols at the end of verse 11. 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria 
and sent to the great king for help. If we were reading the King James Version, this would be a different sentence. Um, because it would say here, not the great king, but King Jerob. J-A-R-E-B. King Jerob. Um, and some other translations, like the New King James Version, still follow that. Um, uh, that's because it was unknown what this word was. Luther even followed that King Jerob thing with, um, with, with, with his German translation here, not really understanding. And he wondered, and he said, I don't know what this means, which is one of the best things a translator can say. You know, to say, I'm, I'm writing this down, but I'm really not sure. That's pretty honest of a, uh, you know, for a translator and humble. Um, and Luther, saw it, Luther thought, is this the name of an Assyrian king or is it some other Assyrian word? Which it turns out is exactly right. Um, Jerob or Yarev does seem to be an, an Akkadian or Assyrian word meaning great. The great king. That's why our NIV says that. The great king. Um, some kind of... And Rab or Rav, which is the end of Yarav, Yarev, does mean great in Hebrew. So they're kind of connected. But there are some Assyrian or Akkadian words in the Hebrew Bible. Um, have I told you the name of the prophet whose name was actually Akkadian, not Hebrew? One of the minor prophets. It's the weirdest minor prophet name. Well, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum are not too weird. Habakkuk is just Habakkuk? Um, which uh, turns out is the Akkadian word for a gourd of some kind. And so I, I often translate his name as Gordy um, for people. Uh, so yeah, that'd be kind of cool if our Bible said, you know, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Gordy, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Like, what's going on there? And when I was a kid, I said Habakkuk. Anybody else here say Habakkuk as a kid? I did. I didn't know. Yeah. I think I remember my childhood pastor avoiding it. As, uh, and, you know, calling him, what would it be? Calling him like the eighth minor prophet instead of, you know, his name. Um, but, so, and this did happen, by the way, which is another reason why I think this chapter takes us into that moment of the Assyrian crisis, because this did happen. The king... <clears throat> In, uh, um, um, have I been saying 600s? 750s uh, BC. I've, I've gotten the dates wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, King Menachem, or Menahem, he went to Assyria for help uh, when, when the, 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 the tribes of the north were in trouble. He went to Tiglath-Pileser to ask for aid, and he did not get it. So he's not able to cure you, not able to hear your, heal your sores. So that, that, this seems to relate directly to that action. By the way, King Menachem or Menahem was the last king of the north to die a natural death. All the rest of them died violent. Most of them died violent deaths. Verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. So lions do one of two things. They might attack and leave alone or they might attack and carry off. And God says, yep, that's me. So, and, and, and I'm going to use the Assyrians to do it. 
leaving some behind, carrying some off, which is what the Assyrians did. The ones they left behind, the remnant they left behind in, in Galilee, and especially in Samaria, the Assyrians brought in Gentiles from other parts of Assyria and um, um, the, some Medes and some others, and they intermarried them with the remnant of the Israelites in Samaria. And in the New Testament, those people are called the Samaritans. Yeah. At, in the beginning, they tried to do uh, a new religion, but the people who were the remnant of Israel, they felt so strongly about what had happened to them that they held on to their Old Testament faith, even though they long, no longer had access to any temple. Um, they hated the calf idols. They hated what had happened to them. And so the Samaritans were fiercely um, uh, in favor of the Old Testament worship. And today, one of the best uh, witnesses of the books of Moses is a document called the Samaritan Pentateuch, written in Hebrew, um, a, a copy of, one of the oldest copies of the, of the books of Moses. 15, then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt and they will seek my face in their misery. They will earnestly seek me. So God says, I'm going to leave them alone until there is nothing left for them. I mean, no blessings, nothing. The only thing left is for them to repent. When we're calling people to repentance, um, we end up at, at sometimes at the stage where someone is, is, has been called to repentance so much that they are left with nothing but repentance left to them in their relationship with God. What do we call that when they've been so cut off from worship, from communion, that there's nothing left? Excommunication, yeah. Um, and uh, that's part of the ministry of the keys. Is there forgiveness for someone who's excommunicated? Yeah, if there's repentance, yeah. There isn't even a ceremony. There isn't a de-excommunication ceremony. It's just if there's repentance, there's forgiveness. If a person has been excommunicated because of a large public sin and they repent, there might be something said to the, by way of explanation to the congregation. By the way, we rejoice that so and so, Pastor Smith has repented and come back. You know, whatever it might, I don't want to use somebody else's name. So has, you know, has, and so uh, we rejoice in this. There might be something like that. But normally just calling them back. That brings us to the end of chapter five. We'll meet again next time. God bless you all. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.